All right, last time we were together, we were looking at the Church of Philadelphia, and just very briefly remind you of some things about it. Hey, come on, Fred. Um, it was a church that had a big problem with Jewish persecution, and um, Jesus, of course, makes a point even in his identification of himself that he is indeed God, that he is the one that has the throne of David, and that uh, he is the one who's responsible for anybody entering into the kingdom of God. He's the only one that can shut the door and open the door. And he made mention of the fact that the church at Philadelphia, even though they perhaps were small in number, he said they had a little strength. Uh, They have kept his word and not denied his name. Even though there was a synagogue of Satan in the community, and he said the time will come where they'll come to them and worship before thy feet, and we're not sure what that all means. More than likely it means that they were going to be Jewish people converted in the city because of their stance for truth. And um, we stopped at verse 9, so we'll pick up at verse 10. And he goes on, because thou hast kept... The word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now we're not sure what's going on here, um, but evidently Jesus is prophesying about the problems that they're dealing with as far as persecution uh, there in the world because of the Roman government. And for some reason, because, well, not for some reason, because of the fact that they had done um, a good job standing up to persecution thus far, as was mentioned in verse um, 8, they had kept the word and not denied his name. As we talked about before, that was a a particular point in history because it's in the aorist tense, meaning he's talking about a certain event that took place that we don't have record of. Because they had done such a good job standing up before, he was going to make sure they stood up before any persecution again because they are those who keep the word of his patience. And then he goes on in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So he's saying that you've done good in the past there in the church in Philadelphia when it comes to persecution He's going to protect them in the persecution that's going to come uh, in the future to make sure that you hold fast, that nobody can take your crown. And, of course, the crown is the crown of eternal life. Then he says something that is unusual. And uh, before I get into verse 12, I went through 10 and 11 very quickly, but really not a whole lot to say about that. Any questions or comments about that? Anything anybody want to add? I want to leave you hanging if you had a question. I really want to get to verse 12 because it's an interesting verse. It says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. All right, there's a lot going on in this verse. In fact, it's a very long verse because the thought is so long. But after making the, the point that he's going to be with them with the trials that they will face in the future, and they need to hang on, don't let go of that crown, don't let anybody take it away from you. If you do this, he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what in the world would that be, an, how that, would that be an advantage, or what is that? 
Now, pillar, we're, not, we're talking about pillar, not pillow. We're not talking about something you sleep on. What is a pillar? A column, okay? Well, I heard something, somebody say something. All right, a support. So remember, the book of Revelation is a book of images, pictures, word pictures. And so here's a word picture they're throwing out. If you hang on, you're going to be one of the pillars that if you would look at a temple of God, there'd be these pillars going around the temple, and you would be one of those pillars. How would that, what would, that being in your mind, how would that be something that would say, all right, man, I'm going to hang on then. Okay, important piece. Uh, sometimes we talk about Jeff when we say he's a pillar in the community. All right, what does that mean when we say that? Let me help you out a little bit here. If we know a little bit about the history of this time, and in fact, the history of this particular city, even in the ruins that they have found, um, a pillar around a building, building was special not only because it was a part of the superstructure that held up the roof and gave it support and whatnot, but a pillar in this time period was considered something that was an honor. Because what they would do with these pillars, you wouldn't just have a plain pillar there, but instead things would be engraved upon these pillars in a way of honoring this particular person. Okay? So what's happening here is Jesus is setting the stage to show that if you will hang on, then you will be given honor. In fact, if you'll look very carefully... He refers to the person that overcometh as being a pillar. And then if you look very closely in the verse, it talks about the things that will be written upon him. Who's the him? The pillar, the one who overcame. And look at the things that were written on the pillar that were things of honor. The very first thing it says that would be written on this pillar, I will write upon him the name of my God. Now, if, if I was to write on you the name of Far, what would that mean? If you're a part of the family. I, I did that with you. I wrote on you the name of Far, and then you put Evans behind. Um, but anyway, but the Far is still there. Um, but if God writes his name on you, what does that mean? You're his. You're a part of his family. And we sometimes sing the song, we're a part of the family. Well, the family we're a part of is God's family. We're all part of God's family. And so he's saying, the first thing I'm going to write on this symbolic pillar to show where your relationship with me is because you've overcome, I'm going to make you a part of my family. You're a part of the family of God. Okay? And then he goes on and he says, and I'm going to write the name of the city of my God. And we'll talk more about the rest of the verses in a minute, but we want to make sure we know what's happening here. So you write on the pillar, now the name of the city of God. Okay, we'll talk about what that name is in a minute. But if you have your name written down somewhere, and underneath it a city is written, what do we automatically assume? That's where you're from. That's where you're a citizen. So you're a now a member of the family of God because you've overcome the temptation. You did not give up your crown, you not give it to another man, you're part of the family of God, and you're a citizen of the city of my God, which he refers to now, 
as the new Jerusalem. Um, it's called New Jerusalem because the old Jerusalem is where what? Well, it's where the temple was, but it's where God's people were. The new Jerusalem is where God's people are. And this is not something that's an earthly, temp, uh, earthly city because it cometh down out of heaven. Now, we picture in our mind when it's coming down out of heaven, you see this city coming down from heaven, but what's actually being talked about in the text is the idea of where it originates. Where does this place that we're citizens of, what does it originate out of? Well, it originates out of heaven. This is a spiritual place. This is not a physical place. And therefore, it is a spiritual new Jerusalem that cometh down out of heaven, and that's the origin, and it comes from my God. And then some translations leave out the part I will write upon him, but there's the continuation of thought, and it's in italics in most translations. And it says, and I will write upon him my new name. And what is the new name? We talked about this earlier in this text. What was, not in this text, but in this book. The new name we decided was Christian. Remember we talked about how in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 2 it says when the Gentiles come to uh, salvation I will call my people by a new name and then in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 they were called Christians first at Antioch. And that means you have new life. The reason why you've been given a new name is because your whole circumstances have changed. And people go to court to get their name changed. The reason why they want their name changed is because circumstances have changed. Oftentimes, uh, maybe not as much as it used to be, but when a young lady married a man, she would change her name. Why? Because the circumstances have changed. She's no longer in the relationship with her family she had before. Now she is beginning with a new family. And so there's a change in relationship. There's a new life. So what is being pictured in here that gives these people hope, it's not just a column holding up a building, but it's a column of honor. And on that column of honor, it shows you're a part of the family of God. It shows that you're a citizen in heaven. And it shows that you have had a change in life. You're not the person you were before. You have been given a new life, or you have experienced a new birth, if you will. Behold, all things have become old. Behold, all things have become new. Every person in Jesus Christ is a new creature. And so this is, is something that says, hang on. Reason being is because you're a pillar. You got, you're part of the family of God. You're part of the citizenship of heaven. And you've been given a new life. And then, of course, verse 13, the same thing he has in all these churches. He that hath the ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, questions, comments? Anything anybody like to add? Is the, is the pillar picture there? Does that make sense how that would be something, an image that would picture in your mind? And, and you know, I'd say, I'm a pillar. And I have God's name on me. I have my citizenship in heaven and I have a new life. And how that would be something that would be encouraging and give hope to the people who are living in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Anything else? Yes, Jeremy. Okay. And you can, you can put it this way. He, he talked about how they've gone through some kind of persecution before. We don't know. But there was some point in time, prior to the time he wrote this letter, where they had faced persecution and they stood strong. They stood strong. And Jesus says, you know, I'm going to be with you again. Now, 
You're going to be able to bear up to this. You're not going to have a temptation that's going to overcome you in this. If you don't let any man take your crown, hang on. And so there's that image again of strength. The pillar is strength. Um, we put pillars in things to provide strength to it. Uh, we can look at it today as a foundation underneath the house. The reason why a foundation is built underneath the house because that's what holds up the whole house. Without a good foundation, then the house will crumble. And he has given you a good foundation to overcome. You're a pillar, God's family, new citizenship, and a new life. A good point. Yes? Right. Yeah, very good. Now, of course, we don't realize it's not a physical building. It's a symbolic building. Just like I refer to Jeff as being a pillar of the community. He's not literally, as Jeremy says, somebody who stands around real still and people drive by and pigeons land on him. No, we mean that he, he symbolically, he's someone who provides strength and substance to the community. And we appreciate that, Jeff. Um, any other comments? All right, let's look at the church at Laodicea. This is our last church as we finish up chapter 3. And it's interesting, this last church here, Jesus doesn't say a good thing about them at all. There's not a single good thing said. Now, the church at Sardis, you know, he didn't have anything good to say about them as a congregation as a whole, but they had a few that hadn't. Jamie, you were here, weren't here the other day when I talked about dirtying the diapers. You weren't here. I talked about that. Remember, you talked about how they hadn't sold their garments. Maybe you were telling me after church. Anyway. <laughs> well, I thought you wanted me to. But anyway. <laughs> but here's a church where they say, he, he says nothing good about it. There's not one good thing. And also something changes with this church that's different from the other churches. Every other church, when Jesus identified himself, he pulled imagery from chapter 1 in describing himself. He doesn't hear. He makes up something new to describe himself. And maybe we'll see a reason for that as we look at this. But the church at Laodicea, there's three things we need to remember about it as far as history is concerned. First thing as far as the church or the city of Laodicea is the fact that it was a very, very wealthy town. Extremely wealthy. In fact, it was called the Wall Street of Asia. It was the banking center for Asia Minor. It'd be like Wall Street in New York today or maybe Atlanta as far as its banks or even here in Charlotte. You know, we were known as a big banking hub at, at one time. It was an extremely wealthy place. People who lived there had a higher uh, uh, level of living than any other place in Asia Minor. This was an extremely wealthy place. And the reason why, another reason why it was extremely wealthy, not only was it a banking center where they did trading and, and did money exchanges and whatnot, but in this particular region in Laodicea, they had a certain um, line of sheep that had a black wool that was very soft and very uh, velvety that was extremely expensive because this black wool only came from these sheep that lived in this particular area. And so there's a lot of money to be made, and some of the finest clothes you had ever seen came out of the city of Laodicea because of this very silky, velvety black wool that was softer than any other of the sheep wools that was known to man at that time. And it was strictly in that particular area. And so this was a place that was really big on, on having the best clothing, 
a place that had all the kind of money that you wouldn't believe because it was a banking center. But also it was known as one of the healthiest places in the world as far as medical advancements and other things. In this particular uh, city, they developed a powder called the Phrygia powder that was used to make an eye salve that was known around the world for healing eye ailments. And therefore, once again, they had the monopoly on this particular thing, and that just brought more and more money in. So you, you had a big banking industry here. You had a big clothing industry that brought money in. You had this medical thing with this ISAB that came in and just brought in money after money after money. But just three miles down the road from Laodicea was one of the biggest hot springs. In fact, they're still there today, and people can still visit them, and they can still get in the hot springs, though the city of Laodicea is not there anymore. The ruins are still there. In fact, some of the most extensive ruins of any city in Asia Minor, they're still there, and you can go visit them. But Laodicea was also known for its hot springs, and it was considered, a, 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 even way back then, as a place that was a tourist area where people would come and visit the hot springs. And because of that, anytime you have a lot of tourist traffic, guess what happens? Start making more of that money. And so this was probably the most prosperous area uh, in this part of the world. In fact, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that destroyed the city of Laodicea. And they were so wealthy that they refused help from Rome as far as financial aid and rebuilt the city themselves with their own funds. That's how wealthy this particular city was. But what's interesting about this city, it also had one of the largest Jewish populations in Asia Minor. It was known as the, the Mecca of, of Judaism as far as that part of the world is concerned. But here's something that's interesting. Even with that large Jewish presence there, as we're going to see in the letter that we're looking at, we have no history of or no mention of in the text of any persecution whatsoever. Now, if you put all that together, why do you think there was no persecuting going on as far as the Jews persecuting the Christians there in Laodicea, or any talk about the church being persecuted. All right, they're doing nothing to be persecuted for? What are you going to say? <laughs> yeah, they were having a big time. They, 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 they didn't have a need of anything. And why have any persecution? I think I, I, had to, he, I saw his hand. He was doing this. Why, yeah, why, why mess up a good thing? You know, why cause... Why throw something into the gears to mess everything up? Right now the machine is churning. The machine is just churning out that money. So why mess anything up? Why cause any waves? The Christians weren't going to cause any waves, and, and the Jews weren't going to cause any waves because, man, they had it made. The money was just coming in. They were wealthy. They were enjoying. Um, this thing keeps wanting to come off my ear. But they were enjoying a good life. They had the tourist traffic. They had the fine clothing with the wool and the money coming in. Uh, they had the medical care they needed. Uh, in a lot of ways, they were just set for life. They had everything they needed. And why in the world would you do anything to mess that up? 
And so even the Jews that were living there, even though it was one of the largest areas at all, they kind of forgot about the blaspheming of Christ and that kind of thing right now (laughs) because they didn't want to mess anything up. So it's almost ironic. And um, need to keep that in mind as you start thinking about that. The church itself at Laodicea, we're not sure who started it, but more than likely the Apostle Paul did. I don't know if you remember when we were studying the book of Colossians. But in that book, Paul talks about, in the first part of chapter 2, about the church at Laodicea and how he wrote a letter to them. So somewhere out there, there's an epistle to the church at Laodicea. Now, we don't have that epistle. And God, through his inspiration, didn't think we needed that epistle, probably because it said the same thing that maybe the, the letter to Colossae said. But he did write them a letter. And if we go back and date when he wrote the book of Colossians and he had to write the church to lay out the letter to Laodicea before he wrote the letter to the Colossians, that means this particular church here in this area had been there for over 30 years. So that church has been an established church for quite some time. And this church was in the middle of the most prosperous city that was known in that area at that time. Now, would that cause any problems for the church? Does prosperity in a church, is it, what can it do? How about prosperity within an individual's life? And the church is made up of individuals. They get comfortable. Materialism is a sin that is very, very bad if you're not careful. In fact, uh, Paul even warned us that We need to be careful that we don't love money because it can be the root of all evil. And so here is a church that's been there for a long time in the middle of luxury. Yes, Jeremy? Oh, absolutely. Um, The apostle, I mean the brother of Jesus, James, who wrote the epistle of James, um, he had a whole section dealing on partiality. And how you need to be careful when someone comes into your assembly and they're not as wealthy as you are or seem to have the same things as you are. And it's, it's easy for Christians to say, well, we have the haves and they have the have-nots. But I get the general impression in this church that everybody was a have. <laughs> everybody didn't have to worry about having the have-nots because everybody was a have because about everybody in that town had it. Were you, did you want to say something? Oh, you're just waving it. Okay. Yes, Jamie? You do become very lazy. And you quit depending on who? Jesus and God. Is that what you want to say, Flo? Yeah, you quit. You, you forget about God because you don't need God, do you? Uh, that's right. What were you going to say, Michael? Yeah, I, I, I will a little bit. But thank you. I appreciate that. And, and another thing I didn't say about the waters, the warm springs were there, the hot springs were there. But even in this country, people thought about the hot springs having healing powers and they do have some healing powers as far as rheumatoid arthritis and other joint problems and that kind of thing. And so, like I said, this was a big tourist area for people wanting to come and get relief. And so, man, the money just kept pouring in. But Michael's right. If you drank that particular water, it would make you very sick. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever had drank Epsom salts or anything. It's, it's not a pleasant experience. But anyway, that's the, that's the church that... Um, we're talking about uh, there in that particular city. And as I said, there is not a good thing 
said about it. And also, as I already mentioned, Jesus, or John, Jesus speaking through John changes his formula here. And he says this about himself. This is how he describes himself to the church at the Laodicea. He says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. All right, he describes, Jesus describes himself in th- three ways. The very first thing he describes himself as, he, for the first time, in fact, the only time that we have in recorded history and in the Bible, he uses the word amen as a proper name. And he refers to himself as amen. What does that mean? He called himself Amen. That's interesting for your answer. The word Amen is a Hebrew word that was carried over into the Greek, didn't change, and it was carried over from the Hebrew and the Greek into English and didn't change. It's the same word in the Hebrew, it's the same word in the Greek, and it's the same word in the English today. So what was somebody going to say about that? I heard a noise over here. What's what is it? Well, complete can have something to do with it. The truth, I like that. Thankful, okay. What were you going to say? So, all right. All right, we say amen at the end of prayers. Sometimes when someone is reading scripture or somebody's praying we'll, or, or, or preaching, I mean, we'll say amen. Uh, we don't say amen as much as in this church as I've been in other churches where I preach where they say amen a lot. Uh, and there's not wrong. There's not a wrong or right way about that. You can say amen as much as you want or not as much as you want, as long as you're sin- sincere. Amen. The reason why we think it, we believe it means let it be, or so let it be done, or whatever, is because of the root word itself, where it comes from. It's a root word to be. Okay, and that's why we think of it that way. But as Flo, whether she realized or not, she gave us the correct definition of the word amen. Literally, it means truth. And so when we say it at the end of a prayer, or we say amen at a sermon or at a scripture, we're saying, this is truth. This is real. This is the real deal. And so you're saying a prayer, and we get to the end of it, and we say amen. What we're saying is, everything I said is the truth. This is real. This is something we're standing behind. All right. If someone reads the scripture and something about the scripture makes you want to say amen, you're saying, brother or sister, that's the truth. Or a preacher gets all lathered up and starts really getting good at something and you say amen, you're saying, preacher, you're speaking the truth. It's more than just so let it be. You're saying it is. Okay. And so with that in mind, when Jesus uses Gives himself a name. This is a proper name. He's calling, this is one of my names. He says, I am amen. What is he saying? I'm the truth. There's no way around it. And so perhaps the reason why he's starting this letter this way, he is saying, what I am going to tell you is the truth, whether you believe it or not. I know what true is, I know what truth is, and what I'm about to tell you, you better take it to the bank. A little pun there. Because you need to listen to me, because what he's going to tell them, they're not going to believe it first. 
They're going to do like those wrestlers used to do on TV. If you ever watched TV wrestling and, and they uh, did something wrong and the referee called them down all day, they go, mm-hmm, oh, no, it wasn't me, mm-hmm, wasn't me. That's the way the church at Laodicea is going to be. Jesus says, no, this is the truth I'm telling you because I am truth and whatever I say is going to be the truth. Amen, that's what it's going to be. And then he refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. And we sometimes ask the question, witness of what? Well, the word for witness, as we've talked about before, is the word that we get the word martyr from. And so there's more of the idea of him being the faithful and true martyr. Here was someone who was so faithful and so true that he was willing to die for what he believed in. And this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Revelation because there are Christians who are going to die. And Jesus is saying, I am the witness to being a martyr. I died on the cross. I was innocent, but I was faithful. I stayed true. I stayed on that cross even though I could have called 10,000 angels. That's what I did. I want you to think about what you're doing. That's why he brings this up. And then the most important thing of all, not that we want to put more importance to things of all, but where he really drives it home here at the end in describing himself, the King James has it written this way, the beginning of the creation of God. And that might leave you with the wrong impression, especially if you want to be a Jehovah's Witness. Because it makes sounds like that he was the first being created of God. But does anybody have anything a little bit different? What you got? What you got? The source. There's the one. That's really how it should be translated. And that, of course, is a paraphrase. Literally, um, it's the idea of the one who began it all. That would be a better translation rather than the beginning of the creation of God. It would be the one who began it all. He is the creator. He created everything. Everything that's in this world, Jesus created. Uh, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the same was with God. And then it talks about how that he created all things. All things were created by him. Now, why would that be important to put that down and make sure that's a part of his description of himself when he's going to start dealing with this church? Keeping in mind everything we've talked about so far. All right, let me help you out a little bit. What did they have a lot of? Money. And if they had a lot of money, what did they have a lot of? Things, yeah, Money, people just don't do like McScrooge Duck and keep in a vault and swim in it, jump around and dive. They take that money and they buy things with it. They probably had the nicest chariots, had the best togas of anybody. They had all these material things. They had all kinds of things. What did Jesus want them to think about? Where did all these things really come from? From him. Everything we have in this life was given to us by God. They were fortunate because they had more than the rest of the world, but they never needed to forget where it came from. God gave that to them. They didn't earn it. God had blessed them, and everything on this world, in this world belongs to God, and we're just stewards of it while we live here on this earth. But 
they had forgotten that. They had forgotten that the good things of this life, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And they were thinking, huh, look what I did. It's not what God has given me. And so he wants them to know that what he's going to tell them, he is, he's, he's telling them the truth. He's the amen. He's letting them know that he was willing to give up everything to be the faithful and true witness. And he is the one who created everything, so everything that they have really doesn't belong to them. They actually belong to the one who's writing this letter right now. Not John, but Jesus Christ who's speaking through John. All right, that's how he describes himself. Any questions or comments before we actually move into the church here? All right, very good. Y'all do well on the test. So verse 15 says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. All right, first of all, he says, I know thy works. And that, the works here, the impression in the original is these were not bad works, okay? He didn't commend them. And the reason why I think he didn't commend them is because they were doing works, but those works meant nothing to them. Now, tell me how that would work. How would a church be doing works that were maybe good works, like maybe helping the poor, or maybe um, feeding the hungry, or building houses for people? How could that be something a church that was doing works but yet they really didn't mean anything. All right, their heart's not in it. You said something about vain. It was vain. Okay, for show. Oh, that's very good. They had the money to throw around. They could load up a, a five or six chariots of pineapples and send them away, and it wouldn't cost them anything. Oh, that's just a drop in the bucket. I, I can handle that. And, and so there was, they were doing things, but there really wasn't any sacrifice involved. You know, we read the story about the widow's might and how that she gave that one cent and everybody in the temple said, oh, look, she's only giving a penny. And Jesus said, no, she's giving everything she has. And that's a big difference from somebody who's a millionaire and he says, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll spend a thousand here and a thousand there. It doesn't matter to me. And that may be what's going on here. Roger, then Jeff. All right, if you have not love, if they love wasn't the motivation, it was just something, as somebody else was saying, that was just for show, that they were doing great and wonderful things in the neighborhood. I was in the, the banking business for, some, for a long time before I became a preacher, and they were always pushing us to make sure we were involved in the community doing some type of something. You know, doing something for the poor, something with the kids, because why? Because they wanted the bank to look good. And because it's all about looking good. And maybe that's what was going on with the church. There was no love, real love behind it. It was all about commercialism because this was a commercial area. Yes, Jeff? Absolutely. It's a big difference in giving your leftovers and going out and getting something new. And, you know, these works that they were doing... Might have been great and wonderful as far as the, as the community was concerned, but as far as God and his son were concerned, it really didn't matter because, as Jamie said, there was no sacrifice involved. This didn't really cost them anything. Uh, some of you remember the story I told. Of, this is a real story about the woman who called the uh, Butterball hotline about a turkey she had in her freezer. And she had been sitting in her freezer for three years, and she called the hotline whether or not she could still cook it or whatnot, and... The man says, well, 
Ma'am, I, I believe it would probably be okay because the way we seal it, and you've had it in your freezer. But I, I says, but I don't know if I'd eat it or not. And she says, that's okay, I'll just give it to the church. <laughs> that's how people look at things sometimes. And imagine if you were living in a city and you had all this wealth, you know, Somebody comes to you and says, we're doing a food drive and we want you so-and-so to give this much and you give this much. And I say, ah, I can handle that. Don't worry about it. There's no real sacrifice involved. That oftentimes is the case in a poorer church. So Jesus says, I know your works. You're doing, you're doing some stuff, but here's your problem. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. Now, this always causes a conundrum for people. This is kind of hard to understand. The second half of that is easy to understand. We would understand very easily why Jesus would want those Christians to be hot. Doesn't doesn't Jesus want us to be on fire for him? And the Greek word here is the Greek word zestos, which we get our word zest from. So this is a live hot, boiling hot. This is a fiery hot. He wants them to be fiery hot. And we can understand that. But why in the world would Jesus want anybody to be cold? But that's what he says here now. Keep in mind. He says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. And the word here for cold is frozen in the Greek. It means frozen, cold, solid. I saw Jeremy's hand, then Jeff's, and then Michael's. Yeah, preachers used to, I heard preachers a long time ago say, yeah, but this verse is talking about you need to, Quit standing in the door. You got one foot in and one foot out, and all you're do, doing is causing a draft. Well, okay, that's that's a good way to illustrate it. Don't try to don't try to pull one over on me. Very good. And since we had so much discussion on that, we'll talk some more about it next time. 